Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to take a second to thank all the people who support the show and help make it sustainable, both on Patreon and by signing up to Audible via the Dark Histories affiliate link. You can find links to both of those in the show notes if you're interested, or you can help out just by sharing the show with people who you think might be interested, on social media or with all the good people you might know. Alright, let's get on with the episode. Cheers. In 1977, a family living in a small, semi-detached house in Enfield, a quiet suburb of London, was subject to a series of violent, paranormal disturbances which lasted for an entire year. Levitations, moving objects, overturned furniture and channeled voices were all witnessed by more than 30 people, including residents, journalists, neighbours and police officers. Today, we look at the story of the Enfield poltergeist. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome, Season 1, Episode 2. I'm going straight in with something that I'm really excited about, the Enfield Poltergeist. I'll talk about it a bit more at the end, but this is definitely one of my favourites since I was a child. So, if you've not heard of it, tuck yourself in, although since it was kind of covered by the conjuring or I should probably sort of say covered in air quotes there by the conjuring too it's become more famous outside of Britain but anyway let's get on with it let's just jump straight in this is the story of the Enfield poltergeist 47 year old Peggy Hodgson lived at 284 Green Street Enfield with her four children Margaret aged 13 Janet aged 12 Billy, aged 7, and John, aged 11, although John was rarely at home as he boarded at school and returned only for holidays and some weekends. Peggy was a divorcee, a quiet but strong woman. She was working hard to keep her family afloat during difficult financial times. On the 31st of August, at around 9.30pm, Janet and John were in bed when they heard a shuffling sound. Mrs Hodgson came into their room to tell them to quiet down, The night before, the children had complained that their beds were shaking up and down and Peggy was a little tired of them playing around at night. Janet complained that the chair in their bedroom was making the noise. Slightly irritated, she removed the chair from the room and took it downstairs. Upon returning to the children's room, she turned out the light and the shuffling sound started again. She turned the light back on and it stopped immediately. The children were in their beds, apparently not moving. She turned the lights off once again, and once again the shuffling sound could be heard. Mrs Hodgson explained the sound as if someone was walking across the room wearing slippers. Then came the knocking. As they listened, a chest of drawers by the bedroom door slid out into the room, around 18 inches from its usual position on the wall. They stood in the quiet room, all staring at the chest. Mrs Hodgson pushed it back against the wall and once again it slid back out into the room. She tried to push it back again, but this time it would not budge. Panicked, she took the kids out of the house and over to their neighbours, Vic, Peggy next door, and their 20-year-old son, Gary Nottingham, were close friends of the Hodgsons. They explained their predicament and the Nottinghams naturally dismissed the story, but agreed to come and have a listen to see if they could hear anything. The knocking continued, and this time the Nottinghams heard it too. 
Vic stated that he thought it sounded as if the knocks were following him around the house. At a loss, they called the police. WPC Heaps and PC Hyams arrived around 1am. WPC Heaps testified to the investigation later, detailing their visit to the house as follows. On Thursday the 1st of September 1977, at approximately 1am, I was on duty in my capacity as a policewoman when I received a radio message to 284 Green Street, Enfield. I went to this address where I found a number of people standing in the living room. I was told by the occupier of this house that strange things had been happening during the last few nights and that they believed that the house was haunted. Myself and another PC entered the living room of the house and the occupier switched off the lights. Almost immediately I heard the sound of knocking on the walls that backs onto the next door neighbour's house. There were four distinct taps on the wall and then silence. About two minutes later I heard more tapping but this time it was coming from a different wall. Again it was a distinctive peal of four taps. The PC and the neighbours checked the walls, attic and pipes but could find nothing to explain the knockings. The PC and the neighbours all went into the kitchen to check the refrigerator pipes etc, leaving the family and myself in the living room. The lights in the living room were switched off again and within a few minutes the eldest son pointed to a chair which was standing next to the sofa. I looked at the chair and noticed that it was wobbling slightly from side to side. I then saw the chair slide across the floor towards the kitchen wall. It moved approximately three to four feet and then came to rest. At no time did it appear to leave the floor. I checked the chair but could find nothing to explain how it had moved. The lights were switched back on. Nothing else happened that night, although we have later reports of disturbances at this address. With nothing more that they could do, the police left the house, leaving the Hodgson family to make camp in their lounge, where they would all sleep for the next several days. Over the next few days, Lego and glass marbles began being thrown around the house. This was witnessed by both the Hodgson and Nottingham family. Vic Nottingham's father, upon picking up one of the thrown marbles from the floor, noticed that it was burning hot. On the 4th of September, feeling unsure of who to contact next, Mrs Nottingham called the Daily Mirror, a national newspaper hoping to gain some help through the press. Journalist Douglas Bentz and photographer Graham Morris visited the house the following day and they witnessed the Lego blocks flying around the room. One hit Graham Morris in the forehead, which apparently caused bruising that lasted for several days. They returned to the newspaper convinced that there was a story in the house and senior reporter George Fallows and photographer David Thorpe visited on September the 7th. Fallows sympathised with Mrs Hodgson and upon hearing the knocking for himself, contacted the Society for Psychical Research on behalf of the family. The Society for Psychical Research is one of the oldest paranormal investigative bodies in the world. Set up in London in 1882 by a group of scientists, philosophers and other academics, it was the first scientific organisation ever to examine claims of psychic and paranormal phenomena. Its mission statement was to approach these varied problems without prejudice or preposition of any kind, and in the same spirit of exact and unimpassioned inquiry which has enabled science to solve so many problems, once not less obscure nor less hotly debated. 
Although not without its critics, it has remained until today as one of the most legitimate research bodies into such activity, and it still funds various research papers around the world. In 1977, the Society had a new member, Maurice Gross. Gross was keen to embark on his first investigation and soon got his chance at Enfield. By October, the moving and throwing of objects had now been continuing for some weeks. Soft furnishings, cutlery and any household object that wasn't nailed down had become the focus of the disturbances and were routinely disrupting various rooms in the house. On one night, the investigators cleared all objects that could be moved from Janet's room as a sort of experiment. Guy Leon Playfair reported that after some time, they heard a tremendous vibrating noise coming from the now empty room. It was as if someone was drilling a great big hole, he said. He went into the room to find the fireplace torn out from the wall. It was one of those old Victorian cast iron fires that must have weighed 60 pounds. The children couldn't have ripped it out of the wall, but in any case, they weren't there. The pipes to supply the fireplace had been ripped clean in half. Although Maurice Gross and Guy Leon Playfair were convinced by this point, many members of the Society for Psychical Research were not so quick to believe. Many thought it was simply the girls playing tricks to gain attention. In latter years, Janet admitted to sometimes messing about, but claims that they only played small tricks and none of the major events were hoaxes. Indeed, Maurice Gross had said the same, explaining that at times the girls would play up to the events, but were always simple tricks and were always caught out quickly. By November, Maurice Gross had noticed that the knocking sounds around the house had seemed to become intelligent, and so he decided to ask it questions. They started simply requesting the perpetrator to knock once for no, twice for yes. Upon asking if it was dead, it replied by knocking 53 times. As November passed, Janet's behaviour was getting more and more erratic, and at times she had become very unsettled. The words possession were not used, but Maurice Gross went as far as to say that she seemed to be taken over. On the night of November 26th, a doctor had to be called to the house due to Janet's wild behaviour and injected her with 10 milligrams of Valium. This was enough to put Janet to sleep, however half an hour later the investigators heard a loud crash coming from upstairs and upon checking on the girls, they found Janet on top of the dresser, still asleep, kneeling on a wide clock radio. Apparently, she had been thrown 14 feet across the room. As part of the investigation, cameras were set up in the girls' room, which could be remotely operated and take bursts of photos every four seconds. The images documented from these cameras showed several strange happenings in the room. The first was a pillow appearing to twist itself around in mid-air, thrown by no one. The second was a curtain appearing to twist around by itself, though no windows were open. The most extreme photos, however, were apparently images of Janet herself levitating in the air, being thrown from her bed. Janet described the events as such. The levitation was scary because you didn't know where you were going to land. I remember a curtain being wound around my neck. I was screaming. I thought I was going to die. Over the years, the photos themselves have been widely debunked. They certainly do appear as if to be just girls jumping around on the bed. But the twisting curtains are another story. 
On December the 10th of 1977, the intelligence of the disturbance progressed further, this time going as far as manifesting a voice. Janet began emitting a gravelly, growling and barking sound along with whistles. The investigators theorised that if it could bark and whistle, could it perhaps talk? Through questioning, it gradually formed a voice, a low guttural growl with which the investigators would hold many conversations over the coming months. Janet described it as, like someone standing behind me, putting their hand on my neck. The investigators recorded the interviews with this voice, and one crucial recording, during an interview by both investigators, the voice refers to itself as a man by the name of Bill. I want you to tell me whether you remember what happened to you when you died. Just before you died and just after you died. Months later, Gross was contacted by a man named Terry Wilkins. Terry's father had lived in the Hodgson's home prior to the family. He had, Terry confirmed, died of a hemorrhage in his favourite chair on the first floor. His father's name was Bill. The investigators claimed to have later put water in Janet's mouth and covered it up with a strip of tape, though the voice still spoke. John Hasted, a physicist at London's Burbeck College, carried out an experiment together with Adrian Forsin, a phonetics expert at University College London. Tests with, a laryng- Tests with a laryngograph indicated that the voice was using Janet's false vocal folds, not by the larynx as in usual speech. If a person was to talk using their false vocal folds for any period of time, they would usually suffer from a sore throat at best, with the danger of long-term injury very real. Janet, however, would talk to investigators in this voice for hours on end, and later, upon returning to her normal voice, would suffer no adverse effect at all. The disturbances continued in much the same vein until July 1978. Here, Janet was admitted to Maudsley Hospital for extensive psychiatric testing. Two months later, she was given a clean bill of health, with no signs of Tourette's or epilepsy or any other illness which could partially explain some of the events from the past months. Upon her return home, the disturbances seemed to calm down. Almost as quickly as they had begun, the strange happenings at the Hodgson home had finally ceased. Today, 40 years on, the Enfield case remains as Britain's most famous haunting, and though it has had extensive criticism, it's never been fully debunked. Enfield Poltergeist. What a great story. I've loved that since I was a child and I'm going to sort of go into some of the more critical analysis of what I think happened after these short ads. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? So do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, you get ad-free versions of the show with early access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store and all that other good stuff you get content from me you get videos 
I give like a little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show. And by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the episode. So the Enfield Poltergeist, did it happen, did it not happen? So it's a corker of a story and I do think on the surface it, it has a lot of credibility when you look at why they would have done it, what, what, how, how would it have benefited them? And you sort of have to think, well, not very much, at least not financially. It didn't really benefit them financially at all. It, they did get some compensation from the newspaper stories, but it, it wasn't much. It was, you know, they, they were not a family that was very well off and they were struggling and having hard times. And the thing is, I know myself, you know, when, I, when I've gone through sort of hard financial times, any money is a lot of money. So you, you can say they did sort of financially benefit, but it wasn't a huge amount. And no one involved really benefited a huge amount. You had Guy Lyon Playfair that kind of benefited in the end when he wrote his books. And, you know, I'm sure he got paid handsomely from the TV show and The Conjuring and stuff. But that was so many years later, you know, that was that was nearly 50 years later. I'm not sure you would, you know, that's a long, you're planning a long game if you're thinking, you know, calling 50 years rubbing my hands together here you know that's that's a long game so i'm not sure you know when you look at other cases for example like other other famous cases because you would have to say that this case is probably up there with kind of bawdy rectory and it probably is up there as you could possibly say it, it, it's kind of the amityville of england i guess whereas you look at the Amityville and, and that, you know, everyone profited from that for a very long time. Whereas this case, it's not really the case. It's not really so. So then you have to look at, okay, what other benefits did they have? One of the easiest kind of shots at this is that their children, their parents had just split up. And they obviously, they didn't have a father around the house or whatever. And... um the psychical researchers that came around, they they basically were like living in their house for quite long periods. They were, or they were sort of staying on and off, but they stayed there for quite long periods. And obviously they gave the girls a lot of attention. So you can easily sort of see there where I'm going with this, right? You know, it's a, a kind of father figure that comes along and is very nice to them and gives them all the attention they want you can see how perhaps financial profit wasn't such a pull for the young girls and you can see why they might have kind of monkeyed around a lot to keep them around and keep that attention and all the rest of it of the two investigators Morris Gross had just lost his own daughter um also called Janet uh strangely enough and so you know he had that he he was looking for evidence of the afterlife 
specifically for that reason as as part of his grief i think you know he wanted he wanted some sort of confirmation that the afterlife existed and you know as any kind of scientist would tell you that that's not how you enter an investigation or or, or start up any sort of experiment with any sort of bias towards a, a positive result um that's probably not good news and then you have the fact that none of it was in controlled circumstances whatsoever some of the experiments they carried out and some of the things that happened um, in the girls' rooms were complete nonsense, I personally think. One of the ones that really I think is terrible was uh, a cushion, a red cushion, and they said that they left the girls alone in the room and when they came back in the room, the cushion had magically landed on the roof of the house. But, you know, there was a window in the front of the house. All the girls had to do was lean out of the window and luz it up onto the top of the roof, you know, and it, it got there. But, of course, the girls said it went straight through the ceiling. And you think, yeah, right, okay, sure it did. So there's loads of stuff like that, which is basically a nonsense. Um, but then there are things which do... And another thing, which is the, the Lego and the marbles that were being thrown around. But, you know, you can easily chalk that up to inattentional blindness which is the idea that you you don't see something until you see it so you know we don't have the capabilities to always know where everything is all the time so our brains kind of blur things out that we're not that, that we don't sort of perceive as important so suddenly the piece of lego flies out of nowhere and smacks into the wall and you go well that came from nowhere but it didn't, it came from somewhere, but you just you weren't paying attention to that. That's inattentional blindness. So, the, you know, that can kind of cover a lot of it. And I think a lot of it, you can say, is, is a nonsense. But there are parts, for example, the, the photographs. Now, there's two photographs or two styles of photographs. The first one is the girls jumping on the bed. And that's all it is. It's just the girls jumping on the bed. I mean... You can see the physics behind it, the inertia and all the rest of it. It's just girls jumping on the bed. It's pretty obvious. But there are photos which are very less seen and less spoken about of a curtain that flies out into the room, twists itself around and then falls back down again. And it's a burst photograph. So it was taking like four photographs and no one's touching this, this curtain at all. I'm sure you probably could trick it somehow, but honestly, I look at that and I think, I, I'm not sure how they've done that. Because obviously, for me, I'm quite sceptical and I, I don't. I am open to the idea. Of course, I make this podcast. I love the idea, but I come at it from a very sceptical angle. I will say that. I wouldn't say like, you know, a capital S, but I, I definitely come at these things from a sceptical angle. And my first thoughts are always to disprove something. But not because I want to disprove it and be a sceptic. It's because if I can't disprove it, then it means it's something else, you know, something that I haven't considered. And that's that then becomes more interesting for me. So say I am a sceptic, but I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a cynic. And when I see these photographs and stuff for Enfield, I look at them and I think, right, how can I explain this in a, in a way that's logical and, and rational? But when you see this photograph of the curtain twisting around, I'm sure there are logical ways of doing it, but I, I can't see it. Because all I can see is Janet lying down. 
the curtain shooting out into the room, spinning round and falling down again, sort of twisting itself up. And you think, that's, that's a weird one, you know, because you, I can see it if Janet was out of bed, but she's not. So that, that's, that's fascinating. I find that strange. Janet's voice, I don't find that strange. I think she was just having them on. I've seen two sides of this argument. I've seen an expert uh, that's, that says that you can't talk like that for a long time without really hurting yourself. And I've seen an expert say exactly the opposite and say, you can talk like that for as long as you want. You'll be fine. So, you know, I'm, I'm here, not here nor there on that. I think it's fascinating that they came out with the name Bill and, and that he died of a hemorrhage in that chair. That's information that I'm not entirely sure how they would have got hold of. I think they possibly could have got hold of it. I think perhaps the papers could have found that information out or the psychical investigators and perhaps they could have overheard a conversation. I'm not sure. But I find that difficult because obviously, especially nowadays, it's hard to imagine that this was in 1977 in a time when that sort of information wasn't so easy to come by. At the very least, it would have taken a trip to the library and trawled, you know, a big trawl up through a microfiche. So I, I'm not sure how they came across that information and that creeps me out a little bit. And I think really that's why this is endured as a mystery for me uh, or, you know, a great story for me because I'm fascinated in ghosts and hauntings, but nearly all of them, I think, can be debunked pretty heavily. And in a way that is quite plausible. But with the Enfield story, you look at it and you can certainly debunk a large portion of it. And it's pretty easy to do, honestly. But there are parts of it that make me think, I'm not sure how that happened. Like the fireplace, not sure how that happened. That I think for me, it's, the, it's, it's those few things. It's, it's the curtain that wraps up. It's the fireplace. And the last one is the when, when Janet was given 10 milligrams of Valium and then she landed on, yeah, they went upstairs and found her basically passed, fast asleep, passed out on, um, on a, like sort of stacked up on some furniture. There's a, the, the, it's a really good photo. Like, so they've got a photo of this and it's a really interesting photo because you sort of look at it to see if you can tell what's going on. Because obviously, the first thing you see is Janet laying down. And that's the obvious part, right? But then you look at the other parts of the photograph and, and the investigator, I, I think it's Morris Gross in the picture, he's looking quite alarmed. And that's quite interesting because he wouldn't have been really... You know, it's these small things which often give away hoaxes. The, the, the kind of attention to detail in the kind of smaller parts of the photo, which actually you sort of would ignore because you'd be looking at the main drawer, which would be Janet. But when you sort of stop, you, know, you take Janet out of the frame and you look at everything else in the picture, it's all quite suspicious and it and it's all quite weird and creepy, really. It's a creepy photo. But the, the, on the flip side of that, you can see that if you look at her arm, it looks like she might be propping herself up. And if she is, she's not asleep. So that makes it sort of more difficult to believe. But then 
it's hard to tell. It's very hard to tell that. But that is kind of the other side of it. But still, those, those few things, I think, that, that, that interests me, the, the name as well, the, those sort of four areas I find quite fascinating about this case. And just the fact that they didn't really profit out of it. I mean, they they do TV interviews very, 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 very infrequently. They did one recently when The Conjuring 2 came out and Janet was on the telly and you could tell that she was seriously uncomfortable and, and, and didn't really look like she wanted to be there at all. So, you know, you wonder when you see things like that, what what the benefit was, unless it was just one of those things that got completely out of hand, you know, at the time they just thought, for me, that's the the most the clearest answer is that they, at the time, they kind of were digging the attention and, you know, after the kind of rough times they'd been through, suddenly they were kind of, you know, it was party time, they were having a great time. And you can see that that kind of run away from them to the point where they didn't consider what might actually come of this and the fact that it might actually have a legacy that lasts for 50 years and perhaps they just don't want any part of it because they knew it was all a hoax. So you can kind of, again, that's the kind of sceptical angle of it. But they're kind of, if you want to kind of go with the believer angle of it, you can equally say, well, these are people who are not media trained. They've not sought out media attention. They've not sought out fame or fortune or, or book deals or anything like that like when you look at Amityville again to use it as a sort of analogue they've not sought a lot of the stuff that the people from Amityville did you know that in terms of kind of you would hardly say fame but you know sort of book deals, agents film deals money, selling the house I mean they couldn't sell the house because the house wasn't theirs, it was council housing which is sort of social housing so the house didn't belong to them so they couldn't sell it they weren't looking to try and make a buck off the house so where do they benefit it's it's hard to say the other the other thing is that you could say is that perhaps they wanted to change the house because it sounds to me like they were living in quite cramped circumstances and you you can't it's not so easy to change council housing so if you've given council housing and you want to move you can't just sort of phone up the council, uh, which is essentially like local government. You can't just phone up the local government and say, hey, I want to move house. They have to kind of, it's a process. It's a big, long bureaucratic process. So you can say that they were perhaps looking to kind of engineer a way of gaining a, a move. But I'm not sure the children would have thought of that or come up with that. And I'm not sure... If the mother came up with that, I'm not quite sure how she would have conveyed that to the children enough to get them to do all of this stuff. I think that's a bit of an outside kind of theory. But yeah, so in total, I'm I'm, I'm really just a massive fence sitter with this one. and But that's saying something, because quite often with ghost stories and things like that, I wouldn't say I'm a fence sitter. I would say I'm sort of more leaning to skeptical side of things whereas this one i do tend to naturally gravitate towards skepticism but that's obviously i think is quite healthy but i am quite on the fence with a lot of things and i do feel like in total i'm quite offensive with enfield it's a lot has been debunked a lot has and you know it would be silly to believe all of it with how there's been so much evidence to come out or so much critique of the investigation that 
has shown that it, it it could easily be made up. But there are parts. There are certainly parts which get to me, and, and I, I can't explain them. And it's those often with ghosts and things like that. When you come at it from that skeptical angle, it's it's okay to write a lot of it off. That's fine. Even if you write ninety nine percent off, that's fine. If it's that, if it's got one percent that you can't write off, though, that's enough. Almost, you know, that's all you need. So that's what leads me to land on the fence. I think. Interesting story. Anyway, I'll leave it there. If you'd like to contact us, you can contact me on email, contact at darkhistories.com. If you go to darkhistories.com, you can find an email form and links to all the social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Mostly everything is just Dark Histories. Uh, Twitter is at Dark Histories. Instagram is Dark underscore Histories. And Facebook is Dark Histories Podcast. But you'll find links to that um, either in the show notes or if you go to darkhistories.com, it's the easiest way you can find links to everything there. And that includes ways to help support the show. If you can support the show, that's fantastic. If you can't, don't worry about it. I do have a patron and also a coffee. Um, but like I say, if, if you can support, brilliant. If you can't, no worries. So, yeah, I'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. It's been wonderful. Thank you for your time. Sleep tight.